Let's open in uh, our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I'm going to read you verses 11 and 12. And we're going to look at pursuing, pursuing, making a conscious, personal choice in our life to change what needs to be changed, to adopt what needs to be adopted, to embrace what needs to be embraced in order to let God bring quietness to our lives. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 11 as I read, and you can follow along. And that you study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we are commanding you. That ye may walk honestly toward them that are without and that ye may have lack of nothing. Now, the Apostle Paul, in the overall context, is talking to a group of people that were so caught up with the Lord's return, they had stopped working. And basically, you, you find the, the whole concept that, that they were, were actually just kind of sitting on the mountaintop waiting for Jesus to come back. And they were causing a real problem with their neighbors and with their relatives who had to support them. And I know that that's the context, and I know this is really a call to Christians to work and support themselves and not to freeload, not to be uh, uh, asking for handouts, but there's something deeper that ties into what I want to share with you. And that is the beginning of the Apostle Paul's words there, that you make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. The quiet life. Christians not only have the obligation to love one another, as we saw last week, but we have an obligation to constantly be good testimonies to the people of the world. Paul had a tremendous concern that these Thessalonian believers earn their own wages. And that's why in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, if you want to look at the context, what happens, verse 10 of 2 Thessalonians 3, he says, Even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, If anyone won't work, neither let him eat. Verse 11, We know some among you are leading undisciplined lives. They're doing no work at all. They're acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command you and exhort you in the Lord Jesus to work in a quiet fashion, to eat their own bread. And as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. And if anyone does not obey the instructions in this letter, take special note of that man and don't associate with him that he may be put to shame. But don't regard him as an enemy admonish him as a brother. That was the context of the problem. But back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But he said, not only don't be freeloaders, but he said something that sounds paradoxical. He said this, he says, you should take care of yourselves. You should be ambitious to provide for your family. And sometimes that becomes a little conflict in our lives because if you're ambitious, you're probably not quiet. And if you're emphasizing quietness of mind and heart, there's a tension with that and being successful in the business world, in that other realm. The scriptures tell us that if we seek and if we find, if we embrace the inner peace that enables us to be sufficient, quiet, complete, through Christ, then we will be enjoying the pursuit of the quiet life. Let me explain this to you by looking at one of the busiest people in the Bible. Turn back to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1 with me, please. Because I want to show you the tension that can exist side by side in our lives 
and the fruit of having this quiet life. If we look in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, I'm going to start reading in verse 29. And I want to take you through one of the busiest people. I personally don't like the word busy. I just use it to relate to the concept. But busy to me, ever since I was a little boy, is that sound on the telephone that they used to have before call forwarding and call waiting and call paging and call noting and call recording and everything else. But in the old days, it used to go, eh, eh, eh. You know, and it was just the most just noisome, noxious sound. I didn't like that sound. And when people say you're busy, I immediately say, no, I'm not. I have a full and rich life. I'm not busy. Because all I think of is, eh, eh. I don't like that. Okay, but Jesus in the vernacular was busy. And start in verse 29. And I want to show you what amazing contrast the Bible gives us about the perfect man, Christ Jesus. He was a man who internally knew the absolute tranquility of breathing the air of heaven. While on the outside, he was totally squashed. He was living a life that was headed toward what we would call a burnout on the outside. And yet he never would have burned out on the inside. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 29. And immediately, that's one of the key words... I think there are 1,737 conjunctions of the word and in this book. Uh, There are 100 for every chapter. And there are an awful lot of immediately's too. This is a fast-paced book. This is almost a video. Uh, It's the closest thing to video you could have 2,000 years ago, this book of Mark. But it's a video of Christ's life. And immediately, they're just stuff is happening. After they had come out of the synagogue, there came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And Simon's mother-in-law was laying sick with a fever. And immediately, they spoke to him about her. I mean, can you imagine? Jesus just came from, from this demon deal where this guy screams and disrupts the service. And, and he hasn't even had time to, to go and transition from that. When they just came to him and said, well, what are you, you did the demon. What are you going to do about this woman while she's sick? And I mean, it's just like that was how his life was. Kind of like you walk in the front door and they say, did you hear? You know, we just got served with a notice, you know, from the lawyers. And they say, oh, by the way, also, the roof is leaking. Oh, your daughter just had a car accident. By the way, did you hear that the stock in our company just plummeted? Oh, did you know? You know, and it's just, it's a blur like that. That's what's going on in Christ's life. And immediately... They started pestering him in verse 30 about Peter's mother-in-law. And he came to her, and he raised her up, and he took her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. Do you notice that it didn't bother his ministry, this pressure? I mean, he didn't go, shazam, you know, and, and, and just do some thunderbolt thing. He went to her, and he... He came beside her and he held her hand and helped her up. There's a gentleness. There's a quietness. There was, there's a tranquility surrounding, an aura surrounding this busyness. But now look at verse 32. Uh, she waited on them, but verse 32, when the evening had come. Now this is a long day. Uh, because he's back in 21. He's, he's starting the day at the synagogue. So the, you know it's been this demon stuff and healing people. But when the evening was coming... After the sun had set, and it sets uh, beautifully, you know, over from Capernaum, you can just see the sun setting over the, the horns of Hatim, and, and Capernaum's right on the water, and you just look back, and you can see the sun going down. It's just beautiful there. But when the sun was setting and the evening was come, oh, 
they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. Why would they do it then? Because most people worked all day. Remember, people were poor back then. They only, they only earned enough each day to, to eat for the next day. And so they weren't gallivanting around going to, you know, Bible conference meetings and stuff like that. They were, they were working. And so in the evening, they started coming from all over. And he healed many. Uh, or they began bringing him. Those were ill and those were demon-possessed. And verse 33, the whole city came to the door. Boy, isn't that something? I mean, just, it, what a scene. Verse 34, he healed many who were ill. They had various diseases. He cast out the demons. And he wasn't permitting the demons to speak because they knew whom he was. And that was a great miracle because these demons were just, they had loud voices. A demonic, a demonized person. The word is crabs, so they scream. They just cry out. And, and in some of them, they had legions of demons, thousands of demons. And so it's amazing his power to tell them, suppress them from talking. But look at this, verse 35. And in the early morning, while it was still dark, he arose and went out and departed to a lonely place, and he was praying there. And you can't even be alone in your devotions. Look at verse 36. And Simon and his companions were hunting him down. I mean, they were out bumping around, going through the bushes looking for him. Hey, I know you're out here somewhere. Where are you praying? Can I? Woohoo, Jesus, where are you? Can you just see the picture? Now that, now, turn over now to chapter 3, verse 20. This is how bad it gets. And a lot's going on in between. He, he's done this leper in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2, the paralytic and, and, uh, the, Levi is called, and he fights with, the, with the, the spiritual leaders, the false spiritual leaders. He heals on the Sabbath day. He picks the disciples. Now look at chapter 3, verse 20. And he came home, and the multitude gathered again. He couldn't get away from them. To such an extent that he and his disciples couldn't even eat a meal. Has life ever gotten that full for you? You couldn't eat you, you slept when you could. I mean, you were constantly pestered and interrupted, and everything was happening, and it was swirling around you, and people were pressing you, and everybody had to talk to you, and you couldn't even set your foot in the house before you're immediately accosted with something else. That's the unquiet life on the outside. But what you're going to see in the Lord Jesus Christ is it never broke the quietness on the inside. And basically this, Jesus had a full and very pressured life. His days were always long. His nights were often very short. His time was constantly punctuated by the cries of his enemies and by the pleas of his friends. He was sought out by individuals. He was hunted by his friends. His life was invaded by crowds. He had to hurt. He had such a hurried life that there were no meals allowed at times. He collapsed in fatigue to the point of sleeping through a storm. Yet in the midst of this constant pressure that swirled about him, Jesus lived in an aura of unbroken peace. He lived and breathed the fragrance of a world of heavenly tranquility. To his dying hour, he was brave, he was bold, he was confidently aware that God was fulfilling his plan through him. If he was just like us, apart from our sin, if he was fully human as we are, which of his habits should we try and imitate? Because his habits that he had cultivated as a man had brought him into a lifestyle 
that led to this quiet life that the Bible talks about. I think Jesus' life was quiet, not merely because he was God, and he was that, but because he had ordered his life around habits that have as their fruit quietness on the inside. And that's what God wants us to have. And there, there are two habits he cultivated we're going to see tonight. First of all, he was a man of prayer. And there's something about the quiet life and prayer that go together. He waited on the Lord, and so should we. And you know what you'll find out? The, the, the most productive people in the world, in God's kingdom, have had an incredible swirl around their lives, but they seem to go around in the eye of the storm. You know, hurricanes? I remember when a hurricane came through Rhode Island. It was amazing. It were hours, I'd say about eight hours, where the wind speed never, never ceased to, to increase for hours. I mean, you, you all think that tornadoes are great. How would you like to be in an eight-hour-long tornado? I mean, where, where the winds are 20 miles an hour, and then they're 40 miles an hour, and then they're 60 miles an hour. And we're talking about a couple-hour increments. 60-mile-an-hour winds for two hours, and then you get 80-miles-an-hour winds for two hours. It's just incredible. It just comes. But then all of a sudden, the most amazing thing happens. When the eye of the storm comes over, it just gets an unearthly calm. You're right in the center of the storm. That's an interesting concept. And that's what the Christian life should be like in this world, that we are in the eye of the storm. And we're in a tranquil spot with everything else is swirling around us. Jesus waited on the Lord. He was a man of prayer. Secondly, Jesus was a man of the scriptures. He waited in the word of God, and so should we. He meditated in the Word of God. He memorized the Word of God. He prayed from the Word of God. He fulfilled the Word of God. He used the Word of God. He knew the Word of God. He did not use his divine prerogatives. He wrote the Bible. Everything he said was the Word of God. Yet he chose to memorize, meditate, prepare, and use certain scriptures to live his life. He who was God, eternally existing with the Father, he who is God of God and light of lights, whose eternal deity never ceased to be, chose to humble himself and to go out in the wilderness and find a quiet place and get on his knees, on his face, and talk to God. He who had... Two and a half million people hounding him. That's how many people lived in the Decapolis area in Christ's life. A lot of people think about, you know, Nawada. You know, Jesus was wandering around out in the sagebrush. No, 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 no. We're talking about New York City is what it was like where Christ lived. We're talking about tens of thousands of people milling around. We're talking about a populace of, of two and a half million in his area that he ministered. And he was constantly squashed by these people. And in the midst of all that, he had time to read God's word and to pray. You know, the keys to a quiet life are found in Christ Jesus. And if you join me, we're going to look at what Jesus found as he searched and fed upon the scriptures. Because Jesus didn't find anything that's not written in this book. He didn't have a different version. He didn't have a different edition. He had the same Bible that we have. He read from the same Bible that you hold. He meditated on the same verses we're going to read. And he drew from that the sustenance of his life. And that's what we can do. And what's interesting to me is that the same two elements that characterize Christ's life, prayer and the word, are the only two things that the apostles derive from living with him for three and a half years. Because at the end of their three and a half year course of training with Jesus, the one thing that they remembered 
when, when things started becoming a little bit tumultuous and a little bit swirly in Jerusalem, in Acts 6-4, they says, ha, one thing Jesus told us and we can't get away from it. We're going to give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And I'll tell you what, you might not be an apostle, you might not be a, an elder, you might not be uh, in vocational Christian ministry, but I'll tell you what, those two things still work. And if you want to live above the swirl, give yourself to prayer and let the word of God have a ministry in your life. Let's turn real quickly back to where we started tonight, to Isaiah 26. I want to take you on a little journey to show you the quiet life. Basically, we're going to start in chapter 26. I want you to listen to what God intended life to be like from the very beginning. And the prophet Isaiah gives us a profound description of life God's way. Now, life that we see today is life our way. It's life in the physical realm. It's life as, as God did not intend it to be. But I want to read to you what Isaiah and the Psalms record. Those portions of Scripture that were most on Christ's lips than any other portions of God's Word. This is the life Jesus lived perfectly. This is the internal quality that we should seek. This is quietness, which is the fullness of God's Spirit reigning in peace in our lives. Now I want you to differentiate here. The quiet life that Jesus lived was not a monastic life. It was not a life where he abandoned the world. It was a life where he lived in quietness in the midst of the world, in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the swirl. And that's what the life of all of his servants, the apostles and prophets, were like. I mean, these men were hounded and hunted and dogged and dragged. They were imprisoned. They were beaten. They were scorned. They were chased out of town. They were heckled. On the side, they had to earn their own living as they ministered the word of God. And yet there is this incredible tranquility. Not as perfect as Christ, because he was perfect, but certainly a lot better than what we're used to. As we have Christians all the time that say, I just can't go on, because life is swirling. Look at Isaiah 26.3. And, and these are great verses. Uh, uh, they're underlined in my Bible. I would encourage them to be underlined in, you, in yours if they're not already. And I would encourage you to, to mark it up till it gets so marked up you need a new one. And get a new one. And it'll speak even more to you the second time through that you start marking these verses. But look at Isaiah 26.3. You, God, you infinite, eternal king of the universe, you will keep in perfect peace the one whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. If you don't have peace in your life, you're not on the right channel. If you don't have peace in your life, it's not anchored on God. It's anchored somewhere else. Our minds are stuck somewhere, but it's not on the Lord if there's not peace. Look at verse 12. Lord, you will establish peace for us. You have also done all our works in us. Lord, you're going to establish my mind. He's the one that can anchor our souls. He can bring rest to our lives. He can bring us the quietness that people will notice in our lives. Look at 32, verse 17 again. I just want to read it. This is one that worth reading over and over again. In fact, it's so good you ought to memorize it. The work of righteousness will be peace, Isaiah 32:17. The effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. I mean, just reading that just as peace peaceful, isn't it? The effect 
the effect of righteousness in our life. Do you see how integrated everything is? It's an operating system. It's an operating system that, that God's holiness internalized righteousness. The effect of God's holiness in my life is this quieting down. You know why? Because the Bible says there's no peace for the wicked. They're like the troubled sea. There's dissonance. There's there's tumult. There's there's everything is just an upheaval. But the work of righteousness is peace. And when righteousness is able to do its work in us, it brings quietness and assurance. You know what the Proverbs say? It says the righteous are as bold as a lion. The wicked runs when no one's chasing them. Have you ever noticed that? The righteous. They're not afraid. I mean, companies can come and go. Countries can come and go. Finances can come and go. They're bold. Because they're not, they're not like, you know, Standard and Poor or the Dow that just goes all over the place. You know, it's got a whole bunch of components. And when they change, it changes. We don't change. Because we're anchored. You know what it says in Hebrews 7? It says, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast because it's cast within the veil. What veil? It's in heaven. Our anchor is not here. It's it's in heaven. That's what D.L. Moody used to talk about. People used to ask him how he knew for sure that God was real. And one day he happened to be out with somebody flying a kite. And he stood next to that person and, and he took that kite and he says, how do you know there's a kite up there? And the kid says, I can feel it tug. He said, the line, it's up there and it's pulling. And he says, I can't see the kite. It was so high, he said, I couldn't see it. But he said, I can feel it. And Moody that night in his meeting says, I know that there's a God in heaven because my anchor is in heaven and it tugs me. My heart is tugged toward his presence. My heart is ever drawn toward him. That's our hope. It's an anchor of our soul. It's sure and steadfast. And the effect of that righteous faith in the finished work of Christ brings a quietness and assurance. Now, look at Isaiah 48. Isaiah was one of Christ's favorite books, and I have to tell you, it's one of my favorite books. It's, it's kind of like the gospel of the Old Testament. It's, it talks about salvation. In fact, the whole outline of the book of Isaiah is an outline of the whole Bible. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are all about gloom and doom and judgment and everything. And the last 27 chapters are about hope and the new promise of God and, and all of, of the fulfillment. So if you want to know how Isaiah is, is divided, the 1 to 39, judgment, gloom, and doom. And 40 to 66, it's all about the hope we have in Christ. And it's a beautiful picture of the whole 66 books of the Bible. But 48, 18. I'll start in 17. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way that you should go. 48, 18. If only you had paid attention to my commandments. God says, I know already. I, I mean, I know what's best for you. I know how you should live life. I know the best partner for you in life. I know the best vocation for you in life. I know the best everyday choices for you to make in life. If you just listen to me. God says, I know what's best for you. And he says, if you'll just tune in. If you'll just listen. Just hearken to me. If you'll just, verse 18, pay attention. God thinks this book is so important, he's forever settled it in heaven. But a lot of us think it's so unimportant that it's almost the last thing we read. If you think about it, if you have a choice of, of surfing the net for the latest news, if you have a choice of reading the glossy news magazines, if you have a choice of reading the USA Today or uh, the, the Tulsa World, which takes precedence in your life? Is this the thing that's last? 
you kind of have to carve out a notch for it at the end of the day so at least you have read it that day? Or is it it's so amazing because it's so important to God that it's become important to you? God says, oh, if you would just hearken, heed my commandments, your peace would have been like a river, your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Oh, there's two beautiful metaphors. There's two beautiful analogies and pictures there. The river. A river is the constant pushing of water. It just keeps flowing, and there's more behind it, and it just keeps coming. And it, it just is a never-ending flow. And he says, I would have made you to have your well-being or your peace would have been flowing in your life like a river, an unbroken supply. If you just listen to me. And look at this, the second part. Your righteousness would have been like the waves of the sea. Oh, there's something wonderful. The benefits of, of God's holiness is that he just comes and crosses the beach of our life and makes it fresh continually over and over again. I just love the ocean. I love to walk in the ocean. I mean, it just... I go out of my way sometimes just to go by the ocean, you know. You know, from Oklahoma, that's not easy, but we do it. You know, we just drive along the ocean. We get there, and I love to see how the kids can go out and with, with uh, you know, 12, almost 14 little feet with those little bodies, they just go and they just make all these little marks. And we stand back there and I watch, and it goes, and it's all nice again. Kind of like your Etch-A-Sketch when you go like that, you know. It's all fresh again. And God says, that's how I want to make your life. He says, I want you to have the river of peace flowing in your life, and I want your righteousness to be like the waves of the sea. You know, it says in John chapter 1, and of his fullness have we received grace upon grace, like waves. His, his grace just comes in our life, goes, and right behind it comes another one. Now, you, don't, you only have waves and lakes when a boat goes by, or if it's a great lake when the wind picks up, but you always have waves in the ocean. They just continuously come. I remember distinctly the day that I memorized that verse. I was sitting in an auditorium, 7,200-seat auditorium at Bob Jones University, and there was a guy sitting next to me, and we were in school. And I was reading this and had worked on it that morning and was just still chugging through it as the service began, and this guy sat next to me. And did you know he talked to me through the entire service? It was a Bible conference. We were sitting in the back, and nobody noticed. And he told me, he says, my life is so empty. He says, I have so much despair. He says, I'm so guilty. He says, I'm so troubled. And I remember specifically opening and, and my Bible, and I says, you know, I just learned a verse about you today. And I told him this, and I still remember him. By the way, he's a pastor in Cherry Hill, New Jersey today. And the Lord's radically, he's no longer empty. He's quite full and blessed and, and everything. But uh, I said to him, you know what? You're standing on the riverbank. You have moved out of the river. Your lack of peace means that you're not in the river because God tells me in this book that if you will pay attention, his peace will just flow over you like a river. You're standing on the bank. You're not in the water where the waves can wash over you. You have gotten way on shore. You know, that's what the quiet life's all about. The keys to the quiet life are found in Christ, and Christ said that my righteousness will be like waves of the sea and my peace will be like a river. And the only reason that we miss them is we're not listening. We're not tuned in. God's not important enough to get our attention. He's not important for us to focus in. He's not important for us to, to dial the dial until the, the, the signal comes in clear. We just we do hit and runs like... Like the jets out here, the, the National Guard, those jets, they're just, they're just doing hit and runs. And I, every time I watch them do that, I think about the afterburner Christians. You know, they're just doing hit and runs in the Word. They, they're flying all over the place. They don't ever land and fuel and get rearmed. It's doing touch and goes 
on the Bible. Well, here's how Jesus applied this. Look at Matthew chapter 11. And remember, the earliest account we have, biographical sketch, non-biblical of Jesus Christ, is by a guy named Justin Martyr who wrote in the second century that Jesus was a literal carpenter that did literal woodworking. And the thing he was most known for was he made the yokes to go over oxen to pair them up. And Justin Martyr wrote in his apology, uh, a sidelight to that, that he had gone to Nazareth and he had seen the actual ox yokes Jesus had made. That's significant that Jesus... Uh, and I, I have no reason to, to disbelieve that report. Uh, it's so ancient. But this is what Jesus said about himself. And I think this is so interesting. And, and this, is, uh, this is just the, the key to the quiet life. Verse 28. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary. You're getting squashed, stressed out. Life's just burying you come to me I'll give you rest take my yoke upon you learn from me I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls amazing verse 30 my yoke is easy my load is light do you know what Jesus was quoting there Another favorite of his. Keep your finger here. We're going to come back. Look at Jeremiah. Some of you went, oh, no, we just left there. Well, you ought to know him well enough. You can flip right back, okay? Uh, if you don't know the books of the Bible, shame on you. You should know them, and you ought to work on that uh, if you don't know them. Uh, you can learn them at any age. I had a good friend that was 95 that was still memorizing a verse every day. Every day. At least one. Some days, he told me he learned three. 95 years old. So you have enough mind to do it. None of, it. none of the folks in here, none of us are 95 here. So, But look at Jeremiah 6.16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways, seek and ask for the ancient paths. Where is the good way? And walk in it, and you shall find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. There is the choice in life. This book, this word, eternally settled in heaven, the great teacher, the master, the Lord Jesus Christ says, come to me, learn from me, I'll give you rest. You can learn the quiet life. You can learn to be tranquil and peaceful in the midst of your world falling apart. And you know what he hears back? We will not walk in it. It's too hard. We don't want that. Jesus was quoting from Jeremiah 6.16 about the old paths that bring rest. Well, real quickly, just listen as I wind this down. Let me give you all the verses together that I just read. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in the Lord. Lord, thou wilt ordain peace for us for thou hast wrought all of our works in us and the work of righteousness shall be peace and the effect of righteousness quietness and assurance forever. Oh, that thou hadst hearkened to my commandments. Then had thy peace been as a river, thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke on you, learn of me. I'm meek and lowly in heart. And you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, that's what he offers. What's happened? Well, often our lives are anything but peace 
They're often anything but peaceful and quiet or assured. We worry for our safety. We worry about our future. We worry about our jobs. We worry about our health. And on and on it goes. Why? Because there's a deadly and yet invisible killer on the loose in our town. First he steals our joy. Then he takes our time. Later in life he takes away our strength. And finally he even robs and gives a fatal blow to the purpose of our life. His name? Overload. His method? Stress. What happens when a Christian who has been gloriously liberated from sins and shackles after soaring with wings like an eagle? Why is he earthbound so soon? Why? Because he's been overloaded. This is what one medical doctor wrote. Think with me where you show up on a diagnostic test that detects the condition called overload. Do you have any of these symptoms? We book our lives so far in the future. We desire to be so efficient that we book many things at once. And we have so many activities that we lose all the pleasure in our lives. Now listen to what God says about doing too much. Psalm 46.10 Be still. And you will know that I am God. And that I will be exalted among the nations. And I will be exalted in the earth. Our world is changing at warp speed exponentially. It's happening so fast that you buy the computer and unbox it today, and it will be out of date before the end of the month or the end of the season. It's just exponentially going. You know what God says to that? Stand still. Ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it, and you'll find rest. See what happens? The world is going... And we think to be good Christians, we've got to right with them. You know, God says, he says, stop. You don't have to keep at the cutting edge of society, of societal evolution, as one person puts it. He says, go back to the old stuff. Go back to the old stuff of a book open, of a pen in hand, of a life before the word, and of saying, teach me your way, Lord. Open your word to me. Find it at the best time of the day. Find it when you're freshest, not when you're dead tired and falling asleep. Find it at a time that is is so costly to you that it will be a sacrifice to make. And come with incredible anticipation in your heart. And say, God, you're gonna you're gonna teach me personally, you. You know, I have books in my library that the author signed. Oh, they're a treasure. You know, the Lord said, I don't only signed this book, but I moved in with you. I want to teach it to you myself. That's why it says in 1 John 2, you don't need paid professionals to tell you what the Bible means. I'm here not to tell you what the Bible means, but to encourage you to get into it. You already know what the Bible means. As Mark Twain said, it's not the parts that don't understand that bother me, it's what I do understand. That's why I don't read that thing. That's what Christians are like. We don't want to read it. It'll change us. It, it, it's uncomfortable. We have to change our lifestyle. We have to change our goals. We have to change our priorities. We have to change who we hang around with, what we put in front of our eyes, what we put in front of our ears. I'm here just to encourage you to do that. The scriptures say, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that I'll seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, Psalm 27, 4. Why? To behold the beauty of the Lord, to learn about him and his holy temple. Philippians 3.13, Brethren, I don't count myself to apprehended, but one thing I do. Paul knew there was only one thing that was important in life, pursuing Jesus Christ. He said, I reach toward him. Well, what can we do about having overloaded 
lacking in quietness life? Well, we can pursue the quiet life. And because of 713, I don't want to talk too fast. We'll just have to come back to it. But basically it's this. It's cultivating a life that allows God's peace to reign. It allows the king and his beauty to be the goal that's at the end of our sights. It's a life that we heed his commandments, and it's a life that we pursue him above everything else. And what happens is, when you get your eyes on the target of Jesus Christ, it just makes everything kind of quiet and settle down in your life. Not on the outside, you're still doing everything you used to be doing, except you're paring some stuff away. But on the inside, all of a sudden, there is the waves of the sea and the river of peace just floating over us. And that's why people come up to us and say, oh, are you ever different? Because you have the peace of God that, that I can't understand. It all comes, the scriptures say, by taking time to let God make us holy. Let's just bow for a word of prayer. Father, I pray that we would, by your grace, because of your word, through your Holy Spirit's power, pursue quietness on the inside. That we will let the effect of your righteousness in our lives by faith be peace. And let that righteousness produce quietness and assurance in us. It all comes back to those two habits you cultivated, prayer and the word. If we're too busy to pray, then our life has reached the point of sin. If we're too busy to meet you every day in the word and to harvest a treasure from your word, then our life has gotten out of hand. And I pray that your children would decide they're going to take time because they love you, because they belong to you, to let you cultivate sightings of the King and his beauty regularly in our life. And we'll thank you for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.